Greetings, Howdy, and Ayup. These are just some of the words I might be using to greet you to this. Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds. It's me, Eddie Hurst, that would make the most sense of anyone to be introducing you to it, and this is my podcast where each week we take a chapter of H.G. Wells' seminal sci-fi classic, The War of the Worlds, put it in a blender, add in a bit of comedy songs, some chat with comedy guests, just tangents of deep dive research, a real smorgasbord of sci-fi fun. I hate that. That's a horrible description, isn't it? But I've committed to it now. Too late! So, this is the second of our interludes where we've found that the Martians have just arrived, they've come out, Ooh, they look a bit gross! And now I'm adding in some things to uh, that I wanted to put into the episodes but didn't find the time during the actual recording. So, what we have next is... The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one! But is that right? Is it really a million to one? Even if it is, how likely is that? Well, I sit down with my friend Ross Briley, who is a very funny comedian. He's part of the Not So Late Show. He is the brains behind the Not So Late Show, in fact. And he is also a professional gambler. So we talk about his his experience of probabilities, his odds, and whether he thinks it's likely, or if I should place a bet and try and become a millionaire on anything coming from Mars. We also talk about how science has tried to decide what the actual number for a probability of aliens coming is, rather than just plucking a million to one out of the sky. Get it? Out of the sky? <laughs> Pun intended. Before we go into it though, please review and rate the podcast. Um, it means loads. It makes it makes it so that more people can find it. And if you're enjoying it, give me a five star review and write a little description. It can just be like, I like aliens, they're all right. Or Eddie doesn't seem like the sort of person who would murder someone. Right? You know, I mean, maybe somebody reading it would be like, well, that's weird that you'd bring that up for a podcast. But, you know, it, it, it's something provocative. It gets people going. Let's get going. Enjoy the show. This is Interlude 2. What even is a chance of Mars? Last week, we took a look at Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. And what a time it was. How naive we were when everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Of all the quotable parts of the musical, you know, all the top lines, you've got Oola! No, Nathaniel. And the hammering of the pit and the sounds of the guns grew louder. All winners. Uh, Of course, there is one more recognisable line than most, taken straight from the book that is The chances of anything coming from Mars And that one has always stuck in my head, like a million to one. You know, on on first read, you think, well, one in a million, that's really unlikely. But it turns out that one in a million is not really that unlikely. Like, there's loads of things that seem way more likely that have worse odds than one in a million. And, you know, while we're thinking about it, what even are odds? Fortunately, I called my good personal friend and very funny comedian Ross Briley about probabilities. And he would know, as he is also a professional gambler. What are the chances of that? Well, hopefully he'll tell us. Ross, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. Um, So I wanted to chat to you about odds and like the likeliness of things happening and stuff going on, because I know that you often worry about things happening and the likeliness of them. I do. I do spend a lot of my time uh, working out the like uh, likelihood of, uh, of certain events happening, wagering money on those things happening, and um, shouting at them to happen whilst they happen. And d- does the shouting help? Uh, it doesn't increase the outcome, uh, the likelihood of the outcome, but it does help me personally, uh, mentally, you know, letting off the, the, the steam that has accumulated during uh the uh the, the event like a therapeutic part of the probability it's um it's the it's the whistle from a kettle <laughs> uh, so uh, i mean we should probably explain for the audience that it's it's not just like generic probability and things happening um it, it's 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 gambling it's the horse racing the ggs 
is G is that right? Yeah, the big uh, the big nags. <laughs> <laughs> the big old nags. Yeah, yeah. I've um I reckon I've had more bets than I've had meals. So Real, uh, what yeah, that that to be fair, you can make more than one bet in a in a go, can't you? Whereas a meal oh, I have a bet every ten minutes and I've tried having a meal every ten minutes, but it indigestion. It's it didn't work out well. It didn't work out well at all. Odds, predictions, uh likelihoods, outcomes. As, as assuming that, uh, like you said, the thing I'm trying to predict has a long face. So specifically, long face. Yeah, I find the horses with shorter faces are, are less likely to win. So basically, um, there is there's a thing I'm trying to figure out, which is that the chances of something happening are a million to one. Now, is that likely? Do you do you understand numbers? Do you know what a number is? Yeah, but then when you say it's some, I, I get num- like a million's quite a lot, right. and one is not a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. So, there's many num- there are a lot of numbers between one and a million. Yeah. Um, normally, if you're trying to predict something, for example, uh, if you are predicting whether it would be heads or tails, of flipping a coin. Right. Uh, you know, they, they are. That's fifty-fifty. So that is essentially okay. even money. Uh, right. Which means there is uh, just as much chance of one thing happening as the other thing happening. Okay. So we're, we're bearing in mind that uh, that would be written one slash one. So therefore, the number on the left is exactly the same as the number on the right. A million to one. Okay. Just if you could yeah. just notice the difference, you know, the size of a million compared to the one, as opposed to the coin toss where the one is very similar to the one. So. Right. Okay. So you want the numbers on each side to be quite similar. Yes, because you know the, the they are reflecting the likelihood of uh, of it happening. You know, if you were to bet on that, uh, you know, it, yeah. It, well, you'd you'd lose. Um, nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine times out of a million, or I'd get like put one pound in and win real big. I mean, this is the thing with this is the thing with odds, uh, Eddie. You know, uh, if something is a million to one, it implies that every time, uh, every million times that that thing might happen, it will happen once. That doesn't mean that it will be the end of the sequence. It could be the first time. And then the next nine hundred ninety-nine thousand don't work out. If you're backing a horse, for example, at twenty to one, it implies that every twenty times that horse runs in this race, it will win one of them. That could be the first race. That could be the twentieth race, Eddie. So you're whatever you're predicting, essentially, you are saying it will happen uh, one in a million. But that could be the first time. So you could you could be all right. You could be all right. All right. Okay. I'll bet. So like, if so, say we got the horse that's one in twenty. If it does a race and it doesn't win. Does that yep. then change to one in nineteen? No, and it's still one in twenty. But but obviously the right. uh, in theory it is is assuming that you will then run the next twenty times one of it. I kind of know what you mean, but right, okay. It just seems a bit harsh that like there's not a not a loyalty card for it. Like right, they lost this time, but hang on, mate, twenty to what? So next time it's going to be nineteen to one. You know, because. Like, when when you buy a coffee at a shop and they give you a loyalty card. Yeah, yeah, you get a free coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you're betting on something that's a million to one. I mean, as a, as a, as a person who bets regularly, uh, Eddie, um, I would suggest that, I mean, save your money, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not a, not a great bet. Unless you have information to suggest that the odds of a million to one are incorrect and you think that that is that they're more likely to happen than a million to one do you have any access to any information that could change the likelihood or the outcome look ross please don't be mad at me um i already am shit 
So I'm, I'm reading a book. It's about um, Martians that come to Earth and there's a chance of a million to one. So it, the chances of it happening are a million to one. Um, and I just wanted to sort of see with you because you're, you're sort of the only person I know who really knows much about odds and probabilities, what, if that's likely. So you've decided you've, you've, you're wasting my expertise on you're basically asking me what uh, are aliens going to invade earth is that what you're asked that's what you're asking my expert opinion on i think it's a reasonable concern you think it's a reasonable concern well i don't well maybe it isn't i just is it a reasonable concern uh well no it's a million to one shot i wanted to run some things past you and see whether like because i know that the numbers on the wall are like one in a million or like a horse one in 20 or something like that but um these seem more likely than anything coming from mars but are they so ross are you ready to to for me to run them past you absolutely quiz quiz me eddie quiz me winning the lottery do you think that's more you're more likely to to win the lottery or have martians come uh well i don't play the lottery so it is more likely that martians will come than i will win the the lottery you'd be right there uh it's actually the, the chances of winning the lottery and this is just the national lottery this isn't like the um the cats protection lottery um which you probably stand a higher chance of, um, is 14 million to one. Wow. So that is, that's 14 visits by Martians. It's not bad, is it? That's like a full party of Martians before you get the lottery win. Can Martians play the lottery if they came down? I doubt it because don't you have to have citizenship in the country for a lottery? Right. But otherwise, if, I mean, as a, as a Martian invader, you'd have to come down, integrate yourself into society, convince people you were a human for 10, maybe 20 years, take a series of complicated tests, then play the lottery. And then even then, that, that, in, that scenario is more likely than actually winning the lottery. That entire scenario of a Martian coming to Earth, getting citizenship, uh, and then entering the lottery is more likely than you winning, winning the, lottery. the lottery. Wow, okay. Well, fair enough, I'm learning here's a good one eaten by a shark do you think aliens are more likely or you're more likely to be eaten by a shark oh well i have a history of antagonizing sharks so we famously i know this i have antagonized a lot of sharks in my time so i i punch them in the nose i I find them to punch them in the nose and i don't wait for them to attack me i'm like come on you little (laughs) you little you little beggars i'm gonna (laughs) sock you in the snozzer um so oh i reckon the chance of me being eaten by a shark are maybe one in two so definitely more likely right well i mean your your relationship with sharks aside it's actually a 3.7 million chance of being eaten by a shark what one in one in 3.7 million so that's 3.7 martians that would arrive before a shark ate you maybe i should start antagonizing martians instead and therefore increase the probability of them winning the lottery so it's all working out and then if i've if i've encouraged them they might share some of the winnings. how about uh death from running and jogging i do a lot of running uh mainly towards sharks so uh does the shark does it if it does if I died, if I was going for a run and eaten by a shark, does that count? Which one would that, which category would that be under? Well, I, I suspect if you're running towards the shark, they're probably out of water, aren't they? So maybe that's why you're doing so well with them. Right, I see. Yeah, yeah. In that case, um, more likely to die from running. I'm, I reckon um, uh, an embolism during a run is <laughs> 50-50 for me. It is the same risk. 
So it's the same amount. So you're just as likely to die from running as you are to have anything come to Mars. Wow. Okay. A terrorist attack. Do you think you're more likely to have a visit from uh, from a Martian or, or or have a terrorist visit you? Um, well, as far as I'm aware, we have won the war on terror. Sure. Uh, it's done. It's sorted. Um, that's just me dusting my hands off the of the terrorism of the war on terror. Yeah, yeah. That's so. I reckon significantly more likely to be visited by Martians than being a, being attacked by terrorists. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. Uh, you stand a 9.3 million to one chance of being involved in a terrorist attack. So, actually, films like um, you know Hollywood has an obsession with with making films about uh, terrorists and the war on terror. So you're saying that Mars attacks is actually more realistic. Uh, this is just the numbers. This is why I wanted to ask you about it because can't argue with the numbers. You know, Ind- Independence Day is seems more likely to happen than Con Air. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Who would you trust more, John Cusack or Randy Quaid? Depends what we're like with a boombox, Cusack with a bullet every time. I'd give him a bullet, give him a bullet and the boombox. Uh, whereas Randy Quaid would run headfirst into the boombox, wouldn't he? Just woohoo like that. And that's why we respect him. That's yeah, why we want him there to protect us. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Okay. And what's the last one? Okay. So the last one is do you think you're more likely of having a huge asteroid hit you or the, the Martians? Define huge. Big. Big asteroid. So, so. A couple of considerations. First off, how big is huge? Big. Like, so I think the idea is um, an asteroid of size enough to do damage to the earth coming out of space right so not like a stray golf ball or... no 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 like like what did the dinosaurs in and uh and secondly again is there any related contingency to the to the to the, to the odds in the sense that the martians could be on the asteroid hitching a ride i'm gonna say no for this one because this um, i'm basing these odds off the book which is specifically about they get in a spaceship and come to earth right okay what about a spaceship disguised as an asteroid that's ooh. now now I'd be happy to accept that, but then I'd... we don't know necessarily, Eddie, whether the whether it was it might have been a Martian visit that killed the the dinosaurs, like because they say takeoffs and landings are the toughest. Bit of the <laughs> Maybe they just crashed. They took them all out. It was a takeout and a landing. Unbelievable. They were like, maybe they came to Earth. and said, look, animals that are just like us. Let's make friends. And then boom, <laughs> killed them all. Uh, and they probably get on better with dinosaurs, I think, because they're like they're in the book. They're described as sort of reptilian, sharp mouths. That's my. We're we're recording the video for this as well. Um, and just for listeners, I I did a the the classic sign of like sharp mouth, uh, with the yeah. sort of teeth, uh, which was spot on. If I dare say so myself. It was beautiful. Yeah, Thanks, yeah. Mate. If I, I could have, it's also the uh, universal display for a um happy vampire, but it's fine. Uh, I think it's uh, more likely more likely for an asteroid because it's already happened. Mate, I got you on for probabilities and sure enough, you've stormed it. I think you've got every answer right. It's one in 5,000, a huge asteroid hit. Oh, that's that's worryingly likely. Right? Right? I, would, I don't know if I'd rather have the aliens or the asteroid. I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry to... No, break so this that's going to... That's really going to affect my sleep tonight. Well, yeah, just put put that in your worry cabinet. Uh, keep that in there. 
I will, absolutely, yeah. I was I was looking for some new anxieties. As if there's not enough going around already. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, on the upside, I mean, you, it, it might mix things up because I've read that, you know, asteroids could bring uh, germs that could wipe out the human race as well. So join in. Why not? We're on, we're, that's that's very much very much on brand. Well, I feel like a lot more positive on probabilities now, Ross. Thank you. I, I feel a little more calmed about about Martians coming. I, so do I. I feel a lot, I mean, significantly more anxious about an asteroid hitting us, though. So it's, you know. Well, I'm sorry. To, I've brought you a gift and a curse. So I'm sorry for that. Well, Eddie, thanks for having me on. You really are. You really are one in a million. So now that we are armed with the mental tools required, are the chances of anything coming from Mars really a million to one? Uh, probably not. But is there a way that we can find out an actual number? Well, if you're a mid-20th century astrophysicist, the answer is... Uh, maybe, maybe? Frank Drake was founder of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, or the SETI Institute for short, or SETI for shorter if you're an Australian saying the posh word for couch. He was dedicated to finding intelligent life out in space by scientific method. In other words, what that means is trying to find tangible evidence that could be objectively shared rather than that story your Uncle Terry has of seeing a weird light in the sky before he woke up underneath a streetlight. The most important thing that Drake gave us in the search for intelligent life was Drake's equation. Whilst you could be forgiven for thinking it's a Tudor way of figuring out the price of potatoes to slaves, it's actually a method for providing probability for life in the galaxy. The most important thing that Drake gave the search for intelligent life was Drake's equation. Whilst you could be forgiven for thinking that Drake's equation is actually a Tudor way of figuring out the price of potatoes to slaves, it turns out it's a method of providing probability for life in the galaxy. Could Mars, the moon Europa orbiting Jupiter, or orbiting Saturn, hold life for us to discover? I'll be honest, I just mentioned those in particular because I got to drop a Kurt Vonnegut reference with Sirens of Titan. I mean, so far I've smuggled two of them into here and there's another one somewhere else in the podcast. But where? Okay, so, Drake's equation. Um, I think I'm just going to read through it because, <laughs> boy, it is long. So, N, number of intelligent civilizations out of space, star, equal, times SP, times NE, times FL, times FC, times L. Got it? Simple, simple, shove it in a dimple. So, R star... So the first one is the rate of stars per year in our galaxy. The galaxy, much like a waistline at a buffet, is constantly expanding, and so each year there are more stars that come into the galaxy. These stars have uh, they have solar systems around them, you know, like they have planets that grow, they have moons from those planets. So the easiest way to figure out whether there are going to be planets that have life is to start off with how many stars there are. A star needs to be there for life to be on the planet. Okay, that's times by FP. F is a fraction. So that would be the fraction of stars with planets. So whilst every planet that would potentially have life on needs a star there to give it the heat, not every star exists with a planet. You can get a fraction of that. So say there's like 50 stars in the galaxy, say there's only like one star of those 50 that actually has planets, that would be one in 50. Then times by NE, that is the average number of habitable planets. They don't actually have intelligent life on it, they just have the potential for life. So like Mars, they found rivers on there, or they, they think that there's water sources on there. That would count because it has the potential for life, but it doesn't necessarily have habitable life. We've got the rate of stars per year times the fraction of those stars that have planets, then times that by the average number of habitable planets. FL 
is the fraction of planets with life on it. Fuck. So, you've got the number, the average number of habitable planets, and then you want to find out from that number of habitable planets how many of those actually have life on it. So, again, like, that doesn't have to be Jetson level of life. I am aware when I said aliens and thought of a, a developed civilization, Jetsons was what my head gave me. Jetsons, in my mind, is civilized life. <laughs> oh, God. Right, okay. So, fraction of planets with life on it. So, that's, that's not stars of planets. That is with life on it. The next one that we see is Fi, which is fraction of planets that develop intelligent life. There's a difference between intelligent life and regular life. Although looking around here, you couldn't tell. <coughs> and then you times the fraction of planets with life on it and fractions of planets that develop intelligent life with fractions of said life with said intelligence that then produce a civilization that can communicate with us. Right. So if you've got a planet full of full of guys who are smart but they have not developed a means through which to communicate with us there's no point including them because we can't interact so the final one is longevity which is time so that would be the length of time that those transmitters can communicate got it maybe you to find n you times a bunch of stuff together a bunch of different probabilities uh right so off the top of my head um, with all of them. I think I know one planet with intelligent life, uh, which is Earth, although I am a little bit grudging to even give Earth that, which gives us at least um, a chance of... So that's one that we put into there, times... How many planets have... How many planets are habitable? Maybe Mars, I guess. Titan. Uh, so I can't have a planet because it's a moon. They have life, but do they, they don't have intelligent life because we've heard of them. So that's fraction of life. So I went away and read a bit more, and apparently, rather than allowing me to place a bet at the bookies for Martians coming, it's actually a method to figure out what information we have and what we still need to discover. But apparently, we're getting there with answers up to in the equation life. So that means we've got rate of stars in our galaxy, uh, we've got the fraction of stars in our planet, and the, the average number of habitable planets. And I say we as well. I don't really mean me, I'm not included in this group. I mean the group of fully qualified and knowledgeable astrological academics who are actually working on this uh, to any, any sense of competence. We think we know the first three letters are closer to 10 than they are 1. Okay, so they're closer to 10 than they are 1. So the rate is closer to 10 than they are 1. All the Fs, all the fractions, have to be less than 1. That's why they're a fraction. But the biggest unknown is L. So theoretically, you can take everything out, and more or less N is approximate to L. So the, the, so the longer that our galaxy has been around, the more likely there is a chance for there to be life. <clears throat> By applying the new exoplanet data to the universe's 2 times 10 to the 22nd power stars, Frank and Sullivan find that human civilization is likely to be unique in the cosmos only if the odds of a civilization developing on a habitable planet are less than 1 in 10 billion trillion, or 1 part in 10 to the 22nd power. That's Lenore Sierra from Rochester University, uh, publishing an article on the NASA website, which I, I think, I don't know about you guys, but I think it really clears everything up for me. I feel very confident in explaining all of this, how it works. But if we have such a clear idea of figuring out what the probabilities of alien life is, and it, you know, it looks like there's intelligent life somewhere in the galaxy, then why, why haven't we been able to find any of it? You know, like, it, it seems like the more the more stuff goes into finding out the uh, the numbers in it, it seems like the odds are on that we're probably going to be able to find something in a solar system or a galaxy which at least can can have life habitable on it. 
even if it's not intelligent. So why haven't we found that? Is it, have we have we said something? Did we do something? Did I do something? Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. Although, to be fair, I'm potentially not alone in this line of thought about humanity and their lack of desirability to have people get in contact. Enrico Fermi was an Italian nuclear physicist whose paradox, Fermi's paradox, was about the second most depressing thing he ever worked on. The first being that he's often referred to as the architect of the nuclear bomb, which I think probably beats it on a scale of tangible human misery. So he created what's known as Fermi's paradox. Now, a paradox is a statement that is impossible or contradictory, such as the famous Socrates quote, If I know one thing, I know nothing. Or, here's another one, a more recent one, uh, the UK is doing a brilliant job of managing the coronavirus while simultaneously having one of the highest death rates in the world. <laughs> Fermi's paradox was born, as so many great scientific schools of thought are, during a lunch hour when Fermi was discussing intelligent life in our own galaxy with some colleagues. Now, I had a look, there's no record on what they're having for lunch, so let's imagine they're dining out on some baby back ribs. Bibs and all. Here, Enrico notes that we are quite a young galaxy in terms of the age of the entire universe. If you look at Drake's equation, you can see that ultimately the closest chance we get to other intelligent life is longevity. That's the age of solar systems following from the existence of planets. So we definitely know that there are loads of planets in the universe in our solar system. And these planets must be older than us. At least, a lot of them are. So, between smacking his lips of barbecue sauce and taking a swig of slush puppy, <laughs> Fermi and his colleagues agree that intelligent life, on a theoretical level at least, is highly probable. But, if that's the case, why have we never seen any evidence of them? You know, surely there'd be at the very least a scouting expedition, curious to see if there's another planet of life they could trade with, or at worst they could take over and enslave in a conquest for glory. I mean, have they not seen elephants? They're amazing! Why wouldn't you want to go have a look at an elephant if you got the chance to? And that is basically the paradox. You know, we know life should be out there, but if there is life out there, why haven't we seen it? Much greater and more informed and more insightful science fiction writers than me have tried to answer this, and I'll be honest, I still don't entirely get all of the arguments enough to create an answer. I mean, I'm pretty sure the chances of anything coming from Mars are worse than a million to one, or else we must have had something from them, right? Like, maybe a card? At the least they could have sent some flowers for this pandemic we're going through right now. But is there life beyond our planet? And not just that, life that is intelligent enough for us to reasonably and meaningfully communicate with. I don't know. But it's fun to think about, isn't it? I mean, I'm not going to be grabbing my binoculars and knocking down the door of the RAF to release their hidden evidence. But for all we know, they may have actually already gotten in touch. I struggle to communicate on a daily basis with creatures who are not just the same species as me, but speak the same bizarre mess of words that I do, and live surrounded by the same structures and landscapes. So if I struggle to communicate with people who are largely my peers, what hope would I personally ever have of understanding a creature which not only has a completely different set of apparatus through which to experience life, but exists in a landscape I may not even be able to imagine, with speech that might not even turn out to be words, you know, my ears might not understand it. It's entirely possible we just have no means of receiving intelligent communications ourselves. And another thing with this is that the idea that they would get in contact with us either, either by positive or negative, it's a very Earth thing to do. It's a very colonial approach. Oh, why hasn't somebody gotten in touch with us to trade or to attack or whatever? That's the only reason that Europeans got in boats to get to other countries. 
They weren't bothered about actually finding out the extra life that was there. They just went and went, ah, can we make money out of these guys? Yeah, let's get some slaves. So it may be that we we just can't we can't communicate with them in a physical sense but also our values are so entirely different that to them it would seem bizarre that you'd actually want to get in touch for the purposes of trading or for taking over i mean it's entirely possible that we just have no means of receiving intelligent communication ourselves like maybe that's the story of humanity we're a species of life that is completely alone in a totally crowded party hiding in the kitchen trying to talk to the cooking timer and listen, guys, if all of that's not relatable content, then I don't know what is. So there we are, guys. I hope you're all clued up on probabilities now and you feel a lot more confident when you go into the bookies and place a bet on Martians. I don't know if they'll take the bet, though, to be honest. Please, uh, thank you so much for listening. We will next week be getting back to Chapter 5 of the book, The Heat Ray. And things are going to uh, get a little violent so please like i said before review and rate the podcast tell people about it it means the world to me if people can share the word of it and get more people listening that'd be fantastic follow me on social medias and that if you want to get in touch with me i i'm on there most of the time at the moment i do have a newborn child so any distraction is a treat thank you very much and i'll see you next week for chapter five the heat ray Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds is produced by Eddie Hurst, written by Eddie Hurst and H.G. Wells. Special thanks this week to Ross Briley. Ross is the brains behind the Not So Late Show with Ross Briley. You can follow him on Twitter at The NSL Show. He's got this amazing series of six videos. The first series of The Not So Late Show is out now. Some really good guests on there. Um, They're all on YouTube at the moment. The quality of them is so, so high. So, so high. So please go have a watch of them uh, because they're just amazing. Okay, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.